This is an ABC podcast. Space, the final frontier for fashion. Yes, this week on Download This Show, we take a look inside these spacesuits that will hopefully get the next generation of astronauts to the moon, plus huge changes for Uber drivers around the world, and can software protect artists from having their work scanned and replicated by artificial intelligence? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show This Week. Our guest this week uh, from AAP, Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson. Welcome back to the program. So glad to be here. Thank you. And Josh Taylor from The Guardian. Always grateful to have you back. It's always good to be here. Now, Uber drivers, are they employees? Are they contractors? Who are they? What are they? It sounds like an existential question, but for uh, well, for rideshare company owners and for those that work for them, it's actually quite a complicated conversation. Uh, but so there's been news this week out of the US. Jen, what's happened? Yeah, so this week Uber has had Uber and Lyft and, and whoever else, uh, they've had a bit of a win. So essentially they were trying to argue um, that their workers were not workers at all. In fact, they're not employees. They were independent contractors and they should be treated as such. And that involves not paying them a whole bunch of entitlements that uh, regular employees are entitled to. Um, so they've had, they've challenged a decision in the Californian court and they've had that overturned. So all of the people who are driving you around places in rideshare companies, company cars, or well, it's actually, they belong to them, I should point out. Um, they're all independent contractors and responsible for their own sick leave and their own holidays and saving the likes of Uber and Lyft a lot of money. So walk me through how we got here, because this is the subject of debate in a whole bunch of different markets, Josh. Why has this decision come about? Um, this, this came about because... Uh, Rideshare companies have basically, once they've entered a market, have been lobbying the lawmakers of the market they're entering into to basically keep the status quo and their their relationships that they've got with their with their riders up against usually unions and and a lot of other sort of industrial organisations that are fighting to say no, these people are actually employees and you need to treat them as such and give them the rights. Um, we're, we're seeing a bit of that in Australia. I'm sure we'll, we'll probably talk about that soon. But mm. the way that this sort of came about in in the in California was that they got a proposition on the ballot and then people voted for it and people voted in favour of it. But then there were sort of uh, legal challenges to that to that law going into effect that treats them as, as contract workers. So um, this is this is the latest level of it, of it um, going up, but uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens next. But obviously the rules in different markets are, are very different and I think that the situation in Australia will be very, very different from what we see in the US. Well, let's do that. Jen, how does that compare to what's been decided in Australia? Well, so far we've seen a little bit of a coming together between the unions and rideshare companies where they, they've kind of agreed on, on some conditions, but they haven't gone to the point where, yes, we agree that, you know, these independent contractors, freelance workers essentially, are actually employees. And so the Albanese government, before they came to power, said that they were going to take action on this and potentially we could see some of this towards the last half of this year. And we're already starting to see the likes of Uber fund campaigns to make sure that um, that workers aren't treated essentially as employees because it, it costs more money 
essentially, and, and that's what it gets down to. Um, and the fact that in the US we saw, you know, 200 million US dollars um, kind of put into a campaign to, to push forward with, with this law that treats workers, rideshare drivers like contractors, I think tells you all you need to know about how much money it could potentially save these companies if they can treat gig workers like gig workers rather than employees. The likes of Canada and the US um, now, for example, they still have this this market where it, they are independent contractors, rideshare drivers, and so they don't get the, the benefits of extra conditions. But importantly, in the UK, they didn't get their way. So in the UK, um, they failed, the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world failed to overturn a Supreme Court ruling, and it did increase their costs. And they do now have to fund things like minimum wages and sick leave and pensions for their drivers, but they are still operating. And so it proves that it can be done. It's hard as an Australian to work out whether things charged in Great British Pounds are actually more expensive because everything's more expensive there <laughs> based on our dollaroos. However, it is proof that it, it, it can happen. And there is there is a big difference between being a gig worker and being a salaried employee. So it's, a, it's an interesting model and one that I'm sure that these companies don't want to take off. How do you think this is going to change the way rideshare companies behave around the world now that there are starting to be these sort of differing attitudes to these rules around around the world? Well, I think we're going to see a fair bit of tightening in the market. I mean, if you look at the the uh, delivery side of the business, we've had a couple of businesses in Australia either pull out or shut down completely in the past couple of months. You know, add to that, VC money is is tightening a lot, so so I guess that that whatever they call it, the the millennial subsidy that they call these these um, services that they're operating much cheaper will start to dissipate, and I think we'll start to see prices rise for a lot of these things. Not not just because uh, riders and and drivers will be treated as as employees, but just because like it, the the cost of doing this is much higher, and that, you know for for so long it's been subsidised by this VC money, and once this sort of goes out. It'll, they'll have to put up prices. So I think it's a bit of an end of the free ride, but um, I think that, you know, hopefully it means that, uh, that for the drivers it'll be a better quality of, of uh, employment for them. Jen, this is a, I, I guess this is a slightly controversial question, but are they contractors or are they employees in your view? Like I think the, the uh, uh, should people be treated fairly? Yes, obviously. Like, but But in terms of like structurally, like, how do they sit to you? I find the debate really interesting. And Uber and, and Lyft and, and the other rideshare companies have tried to sort of persuade people that they should be treated as contractors because of this great idea of flexibility. And you can just kind of log on when you want to, when you've got free time in your night and you want to ferry people around um, and, you know, log on, make some money, come home, and you've got essentially pocket money. And then this is the, this this idea where, you know, these Uber drivers are investing in cars and, and you know, investing in little mints for the back seat and, and all sorts of things to make sure that, you know, they can actually make this a living. So drivers are given incentives with Uber, for example, to ride a certain number of hours to provide service during important times, you know, busy times so that we don't see surge pricing like we did in Sydney the other week. And so they're encouraged to essentially, you know, make a living out of it. And so on that side, you can see why pushing for things like, you know, minimum wage standards and, you know, potentially sick leave when they're ferrying people around during pandemics, for example, is a decent idea. I think somewhere in between the two lies the truth, and I'm not becoming a lawyer on this one. <laughs> what, about, what about you, Josh? <clears throat> yeah, I think it really just depends. So I've spoken to some Uber drivers in the past who say, you know, I only work for Uber. I work these set amount of hours every week. 
it's basically the one company that I'm working for, so therefore I consider myself an employee. And then some people are like, well, sometimes I'll I'll be on Uber and it's not great, so I'll go to Didi or I'll, I'll do Uber Eats orders or I'll do delivery when it was still in here. And so I do like that, having that flexibility. We have seen so many cases, and I think the, the pointy end of this often comes up when there's uh, riders who are killed um, on the road and what, what responsibility that the, the companies have there. And in a lot of those cases... Um, the the companies involved kind of try not to say that they're responsible because the person wasn't logged into the app at the time that they were hit by a car or something like that. And so it kind of gets into the nitty-gritty of like when are they actually considered an employee? And I think in those cases, there is a much better argument to be saying if they're if they're within like if they're they're clocking on between um certain hours, then you know, you're probably considered an employee. You know, if if I'm on my way to work and I get hit by a train, you know, I think I'd probably be my employer who'd bear some responsibility because I was going into the office. Mm. How do you think it's going to play out from here? I think we're going to see regulation. I think the Albanese government, I think it's an easy win for them. Uh, I don't, you know, the the Uber companies will probably put up a bit of a fight, but I just don't think that there's much appetite among, like from the opposition to become the champion of, of contractors at the moment in, in terms of industrial relation fights, but who knows, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. I, I want to see the battle. I want to see the the campaign and how it goes and and how everything is argued essentially. Um, but it'll be an interesting one. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Our guests this week from AAP, Jennifer Dudley Nicholson, and Josh Taylor from the Guardian. Mark Fennell is my name. And uh, in the last kind of couple of months, it's become pretty clear that AI has kind of shifted from being. Well, I, th- I think we said last week on the show, it's a thing that used to happen to us. You know, suddenly uh, Amazon and Netflix were like working us out and servicing us uh, products that we wanted to buy. And now it's become a thing that we are increasingly interacting with. But when it comes to art, there's been a pretty massive outcry from artists who feel like their work has been essentially scraped in order to fuel this this new kind of uh, emerging genre of, of AI art. The question is, can artists protect themselves? Uh, Jen, there's a new uh, um, service that kind of promises to do that. Essentially, it's kind of like a, a capture, but for AI bots, essentially. So it's an academic project. It's created by researchers at the University of Chicago, and it, it modifies digital artwork online with a cloaking technique. Now, it adds something called adversarial perturbations. It's adding extra pieces of code to a digital artwork so that when it's scanned, when the the chat GPT um, sort of art version comes over and tries to sort of steal parts of its styles and, and, and inform its, um, its artificial intelligence, it actually instead grabs pieces of public artwork. And so it, it essentially protects whatever digital artwork is actually out there. It does It does change the way that some of this art looks on the screen. So you will see a little bit of image noise, um, for example, but it doesn't materially change what um, a person will see at the end of this. It does change what the actual sort of AI will see and potentially protects this artwork from being hoovered up and then spat out into your, your latest version of um, whatever sort of photo app that you've chosen to get your selfies from. Do you think, Josh, that there's a market for this? Do you think that artists would actually be interested in, in applying this to their work? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that there are so many artists that are worried about that their, their unique style or their, their creativity is basically being funneled into this, this lifeless thing and coming out the other side and, and it's, it's making life like replicas that never will replace 
the original. And I think I think the biggest concern for a lot of people is what will they be able to do if, if people can just start, you know, if they're wanting to put uh, an image for an article or something like that together quite quickly, just plug it into a prompt and then it spits out the other side. I can see a lot of people wanting to do this. My, my question around it is how long will the AI be susceptible to it. So I, the thing I think about is, you know, there was a the story a couple of weeks ago where people were getting around the, the controls that people had on, on ChatGPT to, to make them say lots of obscene different things and, and um, basically break through the guardrails that, that they put on ChatGPT. And ChatGPT was very quick to sort of figure out ways to stop that from happening. So I would not be surprised if, despite potential copyright lawsuits that may come as a result of, of all these sorts of things happening, the AI developers might figure out how to bypass this this uh, glaze technique that, that they're using to cloak the images to basically get around the, the, the controls that people are putting in place. At the moment, we're talking a lot about things like ChatGPT and, and other forms of AI. Are there other kinds of creative endeavours that you think could be protected in this way, Jen? It's a really interesting one. I did see something recently from um, the head of News Corp in Australia who was talking about, you know, we should be paid if our articles are scanned, for example, and used to inform artificial intelligence. That's going to be a really hard thing to prove. Um, I I think that creative endeavours, unfortunately, are are kind of, you know, prone to being scanned and, and, and sort of manipulated almost by some of this technology. And it's going to be interesting to see what they can produce and what they can't produce for it and how the artist and, and or the creator gets compensated for that. I think the other thing that I've seen people getting concerned about is voice acting as well. So I've seen a lot of voice actors sort of banding together and trying to figure out if they can get their voices removed from some of these AI voice generators because they can obviously see that when it becomes easier, much easier for a computer to replicate someone's voice, uh, suddenly voice acting is is in danger, particularly, you know, for things like video games and cartoons and things like that, you can put it, put it together very quickly. And I can see that that's going to be something that's, that's probably going to be equally as hard to actually enforce, you know, whether people can, you know, potentially have their voices protected um, is another sort of aspect of AI we haven't really thought of yet. I guess it's like now that it, the technology is kind of at a stage where you do have that sort of almost uncanny valley-like reaction to it where you're like, yeah, you're really good. But in the right applications, it's it's good enough to, to fully replicate a human being. Suddenly all these possibilities open up where you just go, oh, this is way more convenient and competent than I thought it was going to be. And, I, and this just feels like a problem that f- future humanity was going to have to deal with. And now it's like, no, this isn't, this is present humanity's problem. My colleague Nick Evershed uh, did a AI thing this week where he managed to replicate his own voice and use that to bypass Centrelink's um, uh, voice recognition system. So these this is real life stuff that we're having to deal with now, and I don't think we're really prepared for it at the moment. What are the other things coming down the pipeline that you think uh, people aren't fully prepared for, Jen? I've seen some examples of AI writing news stories, which for very obvious reasons I don't love. Um, and, and they get things terribly wrong as well, which, I mean, yes, you could potentially correct, but again, I don't love that. And so I, I'm, I'm still stuck on this idea of, of definitely this is coming for other elements of society as well. Josh? Well, I think from the news point of view, the, the latest jump in the quality of Midjourney in particular, the, the photo generator, is quite scary in terms of not being able to tell 
the difference between what is... It, it's not quite there, but it's almost there in terms of looking like a real photo. There's a lot of memes floating around at the moment of a Biden and Trump playing video games, and it sounds it sounds like Biden. It doesn't quite sound like Trump yet because I don't think he can get what the inflection quite right yet, but it's not long before this stuff is in the wild. And, and you know, all those, those scaring things a couple of years ago about deep fakes... It was very early on, but I think we're almost there now. It's going to be one of those things that you can't really trust it, audio or video, unless you were there filming it yourself. And that, that's going to be something that, that news media is going to have to grapple with, I think. I, I guess what you're talking about there is is a, a quantum leap in media literacy, right? You're talking about get, reaching a point where people view every image with distrust, every voice grab with distrust, I could think of a multiplicity of different ways in which that's really bad for society. Like even if we acknowledge that the technology is effective and useful and can be done and can be used for a whole bunch of other things, what do you think it does to us as human beings when suddenly nothing you see, nothing you hear is trustworthy, Josh? I think it's, yeah, it's just a trust collapse completely. Uh, you, you know, I would hope that uh, governments would potentially step in if the companies aren't going to put controls and limitations on this sort of stuff, that they would step in and say, we need to regulate this a bit better before we get uh, too far ahead. But I think we're, unfortunately, I think we're already there now. It's, it's really a bit too late. Yeah, it's already quite disturbing um, with the number of people who will will sort of discredit things that are perfectly credible and, and will absolutely not question other things because it sort of confirms their bias. And so I don't think it's helpful. And again, like what Josh said, I don't think we're ready for it either. So it might get down to the idea that, you know, we have to label when images have and haven't been manipulated, but obviously that too can be manipulated. Similar to what Jen said, I think that she's right that there is already a bit of a trust collapse in terms of, you know, unless you're you're sort of reporting things that align with people's pre-existing beliefs, it's very hard to convince them that, that what you're reporting is true, as try as we might. But I think this will just take it to the next level, unfortunately. <laughs> Download the show is what you're listening to, your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Mark Fennell's my name. And you know what we don't talk about enough on this program, Jen? Space? Damn straight. <laughs> Brand new spacesuits were <laughs> unveiled this week. Can I just get a, like a quick Anna Wintour-style review of the spacesuits? Look, 100% stylish. I understand that they, um, even though we saw them in different colours, they only came in, come in white. So I'm a little bit disappointed about the range. <laughs> but, you know, it's only taken us 50 years and women finally have something to wear on the moon. So hurrah. <laughs> so what is it like technically that separates out these the spacesuits from what, what's come in the past? So as I understand it, apparently these spacesuits allow for greater flexibility. So, you know, the old models were very rigid. Obviously, they're super padded. They're also keeping astronauts alive, which is a very important element I'm and needs to that. continue. I'm extremely pro that. Exactly. <laughs> I think they're pro that too. Um, but apparently these will be more flexible. So potentially they could play different sports on the moon other than golf. Um, that's probably not the official reason. Um, but they also can perform different experiments and actually move around and, and fix parts of spaceships, which also critical to life. So that's very important. And also, if we're going to go back to the moon, we may as well look more stylish doing it, this, you know, the, the, the next time around. And so um, apparently these suits are going to be very costly as well. So style does not come cheap. No. Now, because this is about the return to the moon, are there lessons, Josh, that we can tell whether they've taken from previous visits to the moon that are now being applied on, on these suits? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they've you know they've had the fifty years to to actually sort of think about it and and actually figure out what works and what doesn't. I think the, the most interesting thing that I thought, saw out of this was essentially that they're making it much easier for people to, to get into the suits in the first place. So you basically you go in feet first and you sort of wiggle your way in. And and I think that that was that was basically a feedback from the astronauts and and I guess figuring out how long it actually takes them to get in the suits in the first place. And it's good to see that they're, they're taking that on board. And obviously stuff like improved life support systems and better lights and everything like that. So I've been watching a, a lot of For All Mankind and that that painting the different the alternative history that we would have had if, if the space race has gone a bit differently and seeing the advances in technology, looking at these these photos of these suits sort of reminds me of like, oh, this is this is where it was going. And and I think one of the benefits of, of space travel and going to the moon is all the benefits that we can potentially see in other parts of the of life as well so maybe now that we're doing this again hopefully this will advance technology for everyone are there things that the spacesuits don't have that you would have loved for them to have jen rockets you know if, I mean, if, fair, we're, gonna, if we're gonna really right? go into space like fair. yeah rocket boots like come on now like really where's my s- hoverboard in real life anyway I understand, though, that they, they do have, like, a light and an HD camera sort of inside the suit, um, potentially. And so I'd like to think that that will make for better selfies mm. in, in space. And so I think that's very important. Oh, it's a whole new genre <laughs> of infuriating vloggers. Vloggers in space. Who's going to be the first to do a TikTok on the moon? A t- the first person to do a TikTok on the moon. That is... Actually, it depends if it's going to be banned by government on government devices, by now, but we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, you have to do an Instagram live on the moon? And who wants that oh, in their life? real, get out. <laughs> For you, Josh, is there something that is not on the spacesuit uh, that you think really should be there? Similar to what Jen was saying in terms of just like their own propulsion. I think that, you know, I've, I've seen enough of these movies now to know that getting stuck on the moon or getting stuck out in space is not pleasant. So I think giving them as much... Loading them up as much as they can with with all the tech that they potentially need is probably the best thing to do. And and you know maybe there's there's some more things that they can probably put on it to just in case. Kind of like maybe they should go work and watch the movies and figure out what what all the scenarios that may pop up. There is always this cyclical relationship, right, between you know sci-fi inspiring reality and reality then being used to inform sci-fi. I I always wonder what gets what sorts of ideas get caught up in the maelstrom of that. Um, you know, are there particular sci-fi ideas that that they really should be trying or ideas that began as sci-fi that actually ended up in, in real outfits, Jen? I just want to see Matt Damon up there just gardening. That's that's what I would love to see. Um, I know that that may be the wrong planet for this, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's what I've come to expect. Yeah, I don't know about the quality of the soil on the moon, i got to say. Not very, not very, ox- oh, well, uh, not very is- oxygenated. <laughs> uh, well, we get different plants. Come on, use your, use your imagination here. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd like to see, um, you know, false fake gravity, essentially. Like, that's the one thing from Star Trek, you know, they're all on the spaceships and they're all walking around like everything's normal. Like, we haven't quite seen that yet and I think that's (laughs) that's something I'd like to see. Finally here on the show, uh, should you be fine for parking your non-electric vehicle in an electric vehicle charging station. Now, Gene, you are the AAP's future transport reporter, so I'm, I'm sure this is a very vexed issue for you, but I'm going to let you launch with something career limiting here. Should people be fined or not? <laughs> 
They actually should. I mean, someone pointed it out to me that it would be the equivalent of parking your car in front of a Bowser at a petrol station and then just going off and doing whatever, like, you know, getting your groceries done, coming back, wondering why people are so angry. These spots are actually there for a purpose. And those fines, by the way, also go towards um, electric car owners who don't who use them and don't charge there or who just keep their car connected even though they're completely full. I think the the real kind of criticism could potentially come in with the size of the fines uh, because they reach up to $3,200, which will buy you a very basic petrol car to get yourself into the problem in the first place. Um, so I, I think that, I mean, yes, obviously it has to be signposted. This is a big learning curve for everybody, but no, it's a bad thing and you shouldn't be doing it. Josh? Yeah, I think that it's totally fine to find these people for it. I think that, you know, we're we're a state of play where the charging units are very few and far between. Well, not as few and far between as though they were a few years ago, but they're still sparse enough that it's hard to find one in a lot of cases. And I think that if a council or whoever's installed these for those use, then it should be used for those use. It's similar to, um, you know, I, I use the a car sharing service fairly regularly and they have dedicated spots as well. And I like one of the things that annoys me was when, when I go to park those spots and, and someone's parked in it. So I can understand the, the need for this as, as we're reaching a stage where uh, the, these cars are more and more prominent on the roads, but they still don't have as many charging spaces as people would like. Yeah, I guess that's always really the thing, right? It's it's a case of the fact that like there there actually aren't that many spots around at the moment as it currently as, as many people would like, and so there is kind of a scarcity to be worked with, isn't there, Jen? There is, and some people can't charge at home, and so they really require those spots. Other people will be driving, and they've kind of counted on actually charging it at particular locations because they've kind of plotted that out. Um, I think on the weekend there was video on social media, of course there was, of a very large and fancy vehicle that's completely petrol-driven uh, driving up and, and parking in there, even though there were other spots around and just saying, oh, I'll pay the fine. That's not a great look. And it's it's really not helpful for this whole transition where I think there needs to be a bit more understanding between the two parties because ultimately they're both driving cars. They've actually got a bit in common if they would just not yell at each other quite so much. Well, I just think that one of the, the next stages is going to be, I guess, retrofitting a lot of apartments uh, that have car parking facilities with EV charging stations because I think that's going to be the interesting next sort of fight here because you're going to get into a, a stage where the people like the people who own in the building and, and therefore pay sort of um, fees to live there might be saddled with this electricity bill for everyone charging their car but not everyone will have an EV so it's going to be an interesting sort of state of play as the shift happens over from petrol to, to electric car and I don't think we've sort of uh, figured out how, how that's going to work in practice. Mm. There are laws that will come into place in October around sort of the building of new um, buildings, the construction of new buildings. And so they will have to have um, the, the equipment there in place so that these collect, uh, collective charges can actually be installed, even though they don't actually have to fully install them. I think, uh, like Josh points out, yes, it's, it's definitely going to be an issue around charging, although that can be fixed with a meter. I think it probably a bigger issue is around some of these sort of historic amazing 1980s blocks that Australia has everywhere and trying to retrofit those with enough electricity and, and, and the right kind of um, charges to actually charge these cars. I think that's going to be an expense that people have not necessarily prepared themselves for. Well, we are indeed out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week. Josh Taylor from The Guardian, lovely to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me again. 
And from AAP, Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Park in the right spot, kids. Yes, ma'am. And with that, I shall leave you. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to be most likely to use. My name is Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.